So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. And uh, as we get started here, you remember last week we looked at Jacob's vision of a ladder reaching up into heaven uh, with the Lord standing at the top. And it was through this experience that Jacob, he gets saved. And uh, this is the experience that he will point back to later on in, in the book of Genesis. He'll point back to this experience as his conversion experience. But just like you and I, you know, it takes some time to, uh, you know, learn about God's grace. It takes Jacob some time to learn about God's grace. When we get saved, we can be overwhelmed by God's grace and that he saved us and he's cleansed us, forgiven us of our sins. But as we walk with the Lord, we learn more and more about God's grace. We grow in the knowledge of, of his grace. And sadly, some of us are slower learners than others. It's just the way it is. And Jacob is going to be continuing in his scheming ways for the next 20 years or so. Even though Jacob is saved, he's not yet surrendered. And Jacob is going to learn some hard lessons as he meets his own gene pool, Uncle Laban, who is more than a match for Jacob's scheming ways. But it's not all bad for Jacob. Jacob is still a manipulator, but God is going to now begin to work a work in his life. He's going to start to prepare Jacob for future service. God is going to work in his life and work out of him those things that aren't pleasing to God. And as a result, God is going to bring blessing into his life. But it's going to uh, be a hard road for Jacob, sadly, because that's just the type of guy he is. So verse 1 we read, So Jacob went on his journey, and he came to the land of the people of the east. Now between the last verse of, of uh, chapter 28 and the first verse of Genesis 29, there's a 400-mile journey that's taken place there. And, uh, you know, at this, as, and, and as we pointed out last week, Jacob, he's seen the Lord, and because of this experience with God, he has this new lease on life. He has a spring in his step. He has a new song in his heart. And verse 2 says, And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the mouth of the, uh, the well's mouth. And a large stone uh, that's put on the well's mouth there speaks of how valuable the well is uh, in this part of the world. Water is a precious commodity. It's almost priceless. So they put a rock over the mouth of the well because you wouldn't want a lamb or something else to come along, fall into the well, die there, and just rot away in the water, poisoning the water. So it was a way of protecting the well. In verse 3 it says, now all the flocks would be gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. So no doubt, you know, in fact, don't get the idea here, okay? Don't get the idea that these shepherds are like the ones you see on the Christmas card. You know, these little boys, they got this curved, you know, shepherd's staff. And uh, they got this nice sash neatly tied around their head. And they got, you know, nice clean robes. And they're looking up at a star and a little lamb's by their feet. You know, that's not the picture here at all, right? These guys are rough characters. I mean, they're carrying knives. They're carrying these big, long, curved knives. 
You know, they're living off the land. They're not afraid of anything. And they get a little edgy probably when uh, they're approached by a stranger. And then verse 4 says, And Jacob, without any fear, he approaches them and says to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they say, We're from Haran. I mean, these guys are real conversationalists. You know, <laughs> verse 5. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. You know, they probably had some dealings with Laban. Everyone knew Laban. He had a reputation. And they're probably thinking to themselves, oh, yeah, we know him. If you're going to, and you're going to get to know him, too, if you're looking for him. And so, verse 6, so he said to them, is he well? And they said, he's well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Now, it's interesting because Jacob didn't have Google Maps to punch in his destination to lead him to where he was going. He's never been to his, his uh, relative's, relative's house before, right? It was the Lord that guided Jacob to his family's house. And now Rachel, one of his relatives, is coming uh, to where he is. Reminds me of the verse that a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. In verse 7, then he said, look, this is Jacob talking. Look, it's still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go feed and go and feed them. So Jacob says to these guys, it's noon. You know, sheep should be feeding. You know, why are you here watering them now? Jacob doesn't mind giving these shepherds, uh, you know, a, the benefit of his knowledge. You know, how many times have maybe you've traveled, I don't know, to a, a foreign country or maybe a foreigner uh, comes to you and says, you know, that's not the way we do it where we're from. I mean, people aren't really happy about taking that type of information. But it's the middle of the day and Jacob is looking uh, at people who are calling it quits at noon. And you know, this really bothers Jacob. You can say a lot of things about Jacob, but you can't say that he's lazy. One of the amazing traits of a manipulator is they can size up a situation pretty quick. They can see the bottom line in a heartbeat. People like me, you know, I have to have time to think it through. I have to mull it over in my mind. Um, I'm a little bit slower. But because a manipulator can see the situation very quickly, very fast, they can also see how they can use that situation to their advantage. And Jacob, he's a really sharp guy. He's also a really hard-working guy. And seeing these guys hanging out by the well, it just probably drives them crazy. He's just met these guys, and he starts to straighten them out, telling them what they need to do. You know, okay, if you're going to water the sheep early, get it done, then get them back out in the field so you, they can get fattened up. And it's the way a manipulator is. It's the way they do things. They can get really bossy. They take command of the situation. In doing so, it gives them some air of authority. And all these things may be true about what's going on here, uh, but you know what? Maybe it's also true. Jacob just sees Rachel coming down. And being a manipulator, he just wants to get rid of these guys so he can be with Rachel by himself. He wants to just kind of get rid of the competition. Maybe that's what's going on. Um, verse 8, but they said, we cannot until the flocks are gathered together and they've rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. 
They say, listen, mister, you know, we don't really care for you telling us the way you think we should be doing things. This is how we do things. But these people should be really careful how they talk to strangers because Jacob is going to wind up being their boss. And that's a good lesson for us. You know, something for us to remember. Someone once said, be kind uh, to the people on your way up so they'll be kind to you on your way down. It's a good lesson. Verse 9, now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone away from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And I wonder if, if Jacob, he's just not trying to show off maybe how strong he is. He just grabs his big stone and he rolls it out of the way. It may be that he understands that Rachel is family and that the sheep, you know, they're, they're uh, the family's flock. So, you know, it's just naturally in him. He's going to go and he's going to take charge. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. It doesn't mean that uh, Jacob dips Rachel and plants a big wet one on her. Uh, he's probably kissing her cheek, and that's a customary greeting in much of the world. Um, I was telling uh, uh, Jay and Tammy last night, uh, you know, kissing the cheeks, that's a customary greeting in Hungary, and I lived in, in Hungary quite a long time, but I was never comfortable doing it. I mean, I led teams to Hungary for probably close to five years before we moved there. We lived there five years, and I was never really comfortable with greeting people with that kind of a kiss. It's just not who I am. It, it made me feel bad, though, that I didn't greet people like that, you know? Um, the reason I was never comfortable with it was I never know which way to go, you know? I mean, do I go to the right and kiss their left cheek, or do I go to the left and kiss their right cheek? Uh, I just didn't know. It was so confusing to me, and I was too, actually too embarrassed to ask anybody, you know, what's the right thing to do? How do you do it? So right when I decided, okay, you know, I'm going to get over my fears. I'm going to try to fit in, get over not being comfortable with it. I had a, a British friend, and uh, you know what? He's going to go in and kiss this girl that I know, greet her. And uh, it's not a com common or customary gre greeting in Britain either, you know? Um, I can see he didn't really know what to do, but he makes his move, and he goes to his left as she goes to her right, and he kisses her on the lips. <laughs> you know, it's so embarrassing. I'm just like, you know, that's enough for me. I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to do it. You know, I'll save myself the embarrassment. But Jacob, he kisses Rachel, and then, I don't know, he groans or something like, ah, and he starts crying. And just imagine what Rachel must be thinking, like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, verse 12, and then Jacob told Rachel that he had his father's, that he was his father's relative and that he was Jacob, uh, Rebecca's son. So he ran and told his father. Now, Rachel had probably heard the story many, many times of how a servant came from Abraham and took Rebecca away to be Abraham's uh, son's wife. And uh, 
You know, they probably told her, you know, we haven't seen her for years and years. And we heard that when Abraham was 100 years old, he had this son. And, and God gave Abraham these amazing promises. And, you know, he's very, very wealthy. He gave all of that wealth to his son. And Rachel, she's so excited to hear that Jacob is Rebecca's son. She takes off running. She just wants to share that news with the family. Then it came to pass, verse 13, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him. Now, Laban runs to meet Jacob. He's probably thinking, you know, it's another chance to cash in. You know, there's more gold bracelets. There's more gifts. Cha-chings. You know, he sees shekels in his eyes, whatever. And Laban ran out to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house so he told Jacob, so he tells Laban all these things. Well, I, I think you could bet that Jacob probably doesn't tell Laban everything. So what happened is I lied to my father, and I deceived him to get my brother's blessing by putting goat skins on my arm and on my neck. You know, it worked like a charm, except for the fact my brother wants to kill me now. And I, he probably didn't tell him everything. Verse 14, and Laban said to him, surely you're bone of my, uh, you are my, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So when Laban says, you're my bone and my flesh, that isn't necessarily a good thing. It's probably should be a warning to Jacob, like you need to be on your toes, buddy. Um, Jacob is a heel catcher. He's a supplanter. And now Laban is going to supplant him. Laban is a schemer, and Jacob is going to get out-schemed here really soon. And God is going to use Uncle Laban to work, in, uh, work things out of Jacob's life. Uh, while he works into Jacob, the character traits that he uh, desires to see and to have in him. In verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, the last verse said that Jacob had stayed there for a month. And during that time, what probably happened, it seems, is that Jacob got involved in keeping the sheep. He's doing chores around the house. You know, he's, he's helping out. Um, and, and, you know, Laban saw it. And when you see somebody that has a really good work ethic, you know, somebody that's a really a, a working individual, you want to secure them so that they'll work for you. Someone as sharp as Laban sees that he'll benefit from Jacob working uh, for him. So what Laban says is, if you're going to stay, you're going to have to work, all right? But you shouldn't have to work for free. You know, what kind of pay are you looking for? What, what, what do you need? You know, just let me know, and we can work something out. And God is going to begin now to break Jacob of his scheming ways. And he's going to use Uncle Laban to do it. God is going to allow Jacob to become a servant, you know, a, a hired hand, actually, a hired hand to Laban. In verse 16, now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the elder daughter was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, there's a lot of debate amongst Bible teachers, what this verse actually means when it says Leah's eyes were delicate. Some translations says that she had tender eyes. Her eyes were tender. 
Some translation says her eyes were weak. You know, some commentators believe um, that maybe she just couldn't see very well. Um, some believe it means she had green eyes or blue eyes, um, which were not the standard of beauty for that region of the world in that culture. It's interesting to me that Rachel, it means you. Not like, not like you, you. It means like you, like a, yeah, a sheep. And uh, it's also interesting at the same time, Leah, you know what Leah means? Wild cow. <laughs> I mean, the names parents give their kids. You know, I mean, you just gotta, you just gotta wonder sometimes. But maybe it was considered a term of endearment. You know, it was a term of infection. I don't know. Can you imagine though, when she was a baby? You know, the family comes together, the friends that come together, and they want to hold her. Who's a wild cow? You are. You're a wild cow. You know. I want to hold the wild cow. You've been holding her for a long time. It's my turn to hold the wild cow. Moo. <laughs> I mean, look at, look at this verse in context. The reference to Rachel's beauty seems to suggest that Leah is not the pick of the litter. You know, maybe it means that her eyes are pointing in different directions. You know, you're talking to her, you're looking at her, and she's looking 20 feet over one of your shoulders while at the same time she's looking you right in the, in the eye, you know. I don't know. But whatever is meant by this verse, it clearly means that she's a physical second to her sister. It says, Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. In other words, she had a beautiful face and she had a, a beautiful figure. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. It's just love at first sight. And it continues, verse 18. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Now, throughout this story and for the next 20 years, you know what? We're not going to see Jacob praying one time. He's not going to seek the Lord one time. He doesn't seek the Lord as how he should answer, answer Uncle Laban here. He just leans on his own understanding, relies on his own prowess, his own ability to size up the situation. And you know, it's in contrast to when Eliezer came to find a bride for Isaac. He was praying and praising the Lord all the time. Now, it was customary to offer a dowry to marry a young girl in those days. And basically, a dowry, it was just money or something of value that you gave to the father to support uh, the woman in case her husband left her. It was like alimony in advance, really, is what it was. And it was also proof that you, were, you could afford to um, take care of a wife. And since Jacob had nothing, even though he came from a rich family, you got to remember, he's fleeing from his life, for his life. He's fleeing from his family. So he left with nothing more than just the clothes on his back. And offering to work seven years for Rachel, I mean, this is really an extremely generous offer. Um, you know, but that's the way uh, love is, right? You just go overboard. Offering to work one year for a, a bride, that would be more customary. But you know what? Uh, it doesn't matter to Jacob. He's in love. And to offer seven years, just think how that must have made Rachel feel. Jacob is a schemer, and he's a manipulator, but he also has a heart, too. He's not a machine. He loves Rachel, and he's willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to get her. And so verse 19 says, 
And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. And Laban, seeing how much Jacob loved Rachel, seeing what he was willing to do to get her for his wife. You know, when he heard seven years, it was probably like the light started flashing, you know, sirens begin blaring, jackpot, right? Laban knew he was in the driver's seat, and now he's able to take full advantage of Jacob. But Laban's playing it cool, too. He says, okay, I mean, why not? Stay with me. It's better for me to give her to you than to somebody else, you know? And uh, so Jacob, verse 20, served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of his love he had for her. And if that's not one of the most beautiful verses of in all the Bible, huh? Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Jacob's 70 years old here. He's at least 70 years old here, and he's willing to do anything for Rachel because he's in love. Serving in the field, tending the flocks seven years without pay, and that was nothing for him in his mind, even though uh, he's 70 years old. And again, he probably couldn't wait to get home, you know, from the flocks, just hoping that he might see her, maybe even speak to her, and those days, an unmarried guy, you know, he couldn't just spend time with an unmarried girl. There were really strict rules about potential couples uh, spending time together. And it certainly didn't happen without a chaperone. But Jacob was willing to do whatever. He was willing to wait as long as he had to wait to get Rachel uh, as his wife. And he worked seven years for her. And you know, it's really a pretty good test of love, isn't it? It shows us a very important principle we read about in the New Testament, and that's love waits. Love waits. It's just the way love is. True love is willing to wait. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't seek its own. Jacob is so in love with Rachel. Seven years, it was like nothing. He could have done that standing on his head. And do you remember, do you guys remember what it was like when you're in love with, with uh, your fiancé, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you just head over hills for them? You know, uh, you see guys come to the church, they never owned a comb in their life. You know, now they're coming with, you know, their hair's all uh, product in it and everything like that. They got new jeans and a freshly pressed shirt, you know, and you know they just meant the girl, that's what's going on. And... Uh, it's because love causes you to kind of lose your mind, right? You know, honestly, I'll tell you, I'm still head over heels in love with, with my wife, you know? Uh, she's the most wonderful person I know. I love that woman. And if I had hair, I would have product in my hair too, just, <laughs> just to get her attention. I would, you know? And, and guys, guys here, guys watching online, you know, if I could give you some advice, my advice would be let Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 seep deep into your heart. Let it become who you are. Let it become part of your DNA. And Proverbs 5, 18, 19 says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you. 
at all times and always be enraptured with her love. And we need as men to allow our wives to be our standard of beauty. You know, having eyes only for our wives and to always be enraptured with her love. You know, if, if we as men will treat our wives like queens, I promise you they'll treat us like kings. And ladies, just a word to you, if I may, if I may be so bold, as husbands, we want to be honored and we want to be loved by you. We want your approval and we want your respect. The way you, you treat your husband, regardless of how much of a dirt clod he is, will make or break your marriage. I think in a very will, real way, women hold the keys to a successful marriage. Our relationship as husband and wives is a reflection of our relationship with the Lord. To a great degree, I think it's somewhat of a barometer of our relationship with the Lord. I know when things are right between Tina and I, the way it's supposed to be, our walks with the Lord coincidentally, you know, it's the way it's supposed to be. But, you know, of course, we know that the opposite is actually the case. When I'm submitted to the Lord, when I'm walking in His Spirit, putting Him first in uh, my life, you know, the product of that type of obedience in our lives, in our marriage, is a relationship is right, and it's wonderful. That's the way it's supposed to be, and that's what, you know, that's it really what Ephesians 5 um, 32 says, as Paul lays out the roles for husbands and wife within the marriage confines, he says, at the end, he says, I'm actually talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. When our relationship with the Lord is right, the relationship with our spouse is healthy, it's wonderful, it's the way God intends it to be. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. Now, Jacob, he's been counting the days. He says, Laban, today happens to be seven years. Give me my wife. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Laban's following the tradition. He says, hey, this is how we do things here, Jacob. You know, we're going to invite guests. We're going to have this big party. It's going to be great. You wait and see. But I also think Laban is scheming here a little He's making sure there are going to be witnesses to uh, see what's going on, to witness what's going on, and that way Jacob's not going to be able to back out. And in verse 23, now it came to pass in the evening that he, Laban, took Leah, his daughter, and put goat skins on her arms to make her feel like Rachel. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> but Jacob, he's going to get back a little bit of what he's given out. He's going to reap a little of what he's sown here. It says, Laban took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So you need to understand, it's at the end of the day. It's probably this big party. Um, you know, there's a, you know, a wedding in those days was really a big deal, and it still isn't much of the Middle Eastern world. You know, you, you know probably for sure there's been some drinking going on. Jacob's feeling really good. Leah's in her wedding garments. She's veiled head to toe. And, uh, you know, at the end of the night, Jacob takes his bride into the tent. There's no lights in the tent. 
And he just assumes that it's Rachel. I mean, it would never occur to him to think otherwise. And in verse 25, it says, So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. You know, Jacob probably wakes up in the morning and says, Wow, honey, wasn't that great? And Jacob probably, you know, rolls over to move in for a morning kiss. And behold, what? What are you doing here, wild cow? Where's my little ewe lamb? And you know, Jacob, he's stunned. He doesn't know what to do as he kind of jumps back. He's perplexed. He's confused. There's no words to describe how he must have felt. And you know, it's just a terrible thing that Laban does to Jacob. Laban couldn't have done anything more harmful to everyone that was involved. I mean, you look at Jacob. Imagine working seven years, looking forward to starting your family, starting your future with this wife that you've been longing for, you know, just starting a future together, and you find out it's not her. Laban couldn't have been more cruel to Jacob. But what Laban did to his daughters, I mean, that's off the chain, cruelty, right? It's just unthinkable. What he does to Leah here is beyond cruel. I mean, I I can't even think of what's beyond cruel. It's terrible. She knows that Jacob doesn't love her. And all through her wedding night, she knows that Jacob thinks that she's Rachel. I mean, it just must have been devastating. And imagine what it does to Rachel. Rachel sees these wedding plans. I mean, she's thinking that it's all for her. She's getting all excited. And she's going to finally be joined to the one who loves her more than anything. Jacob worked seven years of his life in order to marry me. And now we're finally going to be husband and wife. We're going to be able to start that family we've always wanted. It's a dream come true. But then on the night of the wedding, her father does this to her. And he does it to Leah. And he does it to Jacob. You know, and you got to ask yourself, well, why do the girls go along with it? Well, you know, because in this culture, the father has absolute authority. You know, a daughter would never, would never enter into her mind to cross her dad in this culture, no matter how much pain it would cause. And Laban and his action is going to destroy the relationship between these two sisters. I mean, just imagine two sisters being married to the same man, the envy the rivalry that's going to come out of this situation. And it's just going to be terrible. It's so disheartening to realize that there are people like Laban in this life. People who will do anything regardless of who it hurts. They don't even care who it destroys just to get what they want. What's good for them is all that matters. But God is going to step in and he's going to strip Laban of all of his wealth. And it just tells us that no one gets away with anything. What you sow is what you reap. You could just write that over this chapter as a title for this chapter. But the good news is, if, if you have Laban-like tendencies, if that's you know, who you tend to be like, if you know it and you're not happy with it, God is willing to change you. If you'll turn to him, if if you'll turn to him, he'll accept you just as you are. 
He'll work in your life. He'll bring about a change that will bless you, will bless everyone around you, and it will bring glory to his name. And it continues, and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? You know, Jacob probably goes on to say something like, why would you lie to me like this? Why would you trick me like this? I mean, why would you take advantage of me when I couldn't see clearly? It was dark and I couldn't really see clearly. Why would you take advantage? What kind of person would lie like that? And this may be the first time that Jacob found himself on the other end of a scam. The deceiver has now been deceived. And it's crazy to realize how bad our sins look on other people. When I see my sins on other people, I tend to be maybe a lot more intolerant. That's the way human nature is. And it's, and it's no fun when the shoe's on the other foot. You know, when what I do comes my way, I tend not to like it. And Laban used the darkness of the night to trick Jacob the same way Jacob used the darkness and the dimness of his father's sight to trick him. Jacob used the other person's weakness to get what he wanted. When his brothers trusted him, when his fathers trusted him, he violated that trust just to get what he wanted. And that's what Laban uh, is doing here to Jacob. It's one of the ways God prunes us. Uh, it, it's one of the ways he removes from us those ugly things from our lives that aren't pleasing to him. And the way he does it is he makes us the victim of the characteristics we have that cause harm to other people. And God will use, he'll often use the things, uh, those things and bring them into our lives to show us how ugly um, and hurtful they can be. And it can hurt so much when it, when it happens like that. But when it happens, you know, if we'll look to the Lord and confess, Lord, I realize how my ways are hurtful to others. What that person did to me, God, I, I see it for what it is. Forgive me and work that characteristic out of me. Please, Lord, will you take it from me? Would you change me so that I, I'm not like this man or this woman anymore? You know, I don't want to do those kind of things that they just did to me. Forgive me and cause me, you know, uh, to just not bring pain into other people's life. You know, if we'll confess that. You know, God will meet us and bring a change in our lives. It, it can be a hard lesson, but it can be so powerful in our lives to break us from those things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Um, Galatians 6, 7. This is the verse. Again, you can just this be the title of this chapter. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And it's not talking about karma or any silly thing like that. It's a spiritual law. And what it's saying is what we do to others, that's the kind of stuff that's going to come back on us. That's why we want to sow grace and mercy and patience and the like. Because there will come a time in our lives when we need to receive from others grace and mercy and patience. And Jacob here again, I don't think you can say it too many times, Jacob is reaping for the first time in his life those things that he has sown, and he doesn't really like it. 
And Laban, verse 26, says to Jacob, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Laban says, oh, didn't I tell you? I mean, it must have slipped my mind. Uh, we have a custom here in our country. The younger is never to be given in marriage before the older. I mean, I, I'm surprised you don't know that, Jacob. I would think that everybody would, would know that, Jacob. You see, Jacob, we respect the firstborn in our country. And you know, Jacob, hearing something along like that, again, it's a bit of a slap in the face for him, you know, because he knows what he's done to Jacob, you know? Just getting a little bit of his own medicine, it's no fun. In verse 27, Laban says, Fulfill her week and will give her to this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Uh, you know, fulfill tender eyes week. You know, fulfill, you know, wild cows week. Stick around for a seven-day wedding celebration and then work a seven, another seven years and you can have Rachel too. You know, don't worry about it, Jacob. It's going to go by fast, right? Faster than you think. You kids are in love, right? And Laban, he's, he's a manipulator deluxe. And Jacob, he would have to agree to work another seven years for Lake, uh, Laban. You know, he would have never agreed to work seven years for Leah. But to get Rachel, he has to agree for another seven years. And Laban knows, you know what? I got this guy for 14 years. He's going to work for me. He, he knows how to manipulate. In verse 28, then Jacob did so, fulfilled her week. So he gave him Rachel, uh, his daughter Rachel, his wife also. Jacob agrees to work seven more years. And immediately upon that agreement, he gets Rachel as his wife. Jacob has two wives in just one week. You know, I mean, I resist the temptation to say one's all I can handle. You know, I can't imagine two, but I'm not going to say it. Um, verse 29, and Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a, as a maid. And this was a custom in those days. The two daughters, they come with two maids to attend to their needs. Verse 30, then Jacob also went to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. And it's going to be a really sad life for Leah, thanks to her dad. I mean, it just breaks my heart. And you can't fault Jacob for it, I don't think, because he never loved Leah in the first place. It's Laban. He's, he's the problem in this story. And when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. We don't know, but I'm certain Leah has feelings for Jacob. You know, she probably also heard the stories of how Ebenezer came and uh, Ebenezer, uh, Eleazar came and took Rebekah away to uh, marry Abraham's son. And maybe when Jacob shows up, I mean, Leah sees him and she's got googly eyes for him, something like that. And on human terms, you know, it just seems so unfair. But God loves Leah just as much as he loves anyone else. And God pours out his compassion on Leah. God steps in and gives her grace in this situation. He blesses her with some sons. And you know what? 
It just needs to be a reminder to all of us. God is more than able to bring comfort and blessing to the sufferer in any situation. Verse 32, so Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will leave, uh, love me. So she has a boy, and she says, see a son. That's what Reuben means, see a son. In that culture, um, <clears throat> people placed a great value on women who could produce children, especially if they could produce male children. Uh, Leah, she sees this child as a gift from God and as an expression of his grace, and she thinks, no one else may like me, no one else may care about me, but God loves me. And again, it's just really, really sad, but that's what's going on. She thinks if she produces a son for Jacob, he'll begin to love her. And uh, it's just sad. Then, verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. You know, how many times has Leah cried out to the Lord regarding her situation? And God gives her another son and says, God has heard my prayers. And she names his son, her, her son Simeon, and that's what uh, Simeon means. It means hearing. In verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, she called uh, his name Levi. Levi means joined or attached. It seems uh, at this point that Leah has given up on being loved by Jacob. She's just hoping that there will be some type of meaningful attachment, some type of meaningful relationship between herself and Jacob. And then verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Judah, of course, means praise. And again, it seems as if Leah is giving up on ever having this loving relationship with Jacob. And she stops naming her sons after these painful realities in her life. Now she turns to God with her fourth son. Praise is his name as if to say, I'm going to praise the only one who does love me in this situation of mine. You know, it's interesting to me to note that the tribe of Levi, those who are going to be the priestly tribe, the tenants of the tabernacle, they come from Leah, not Rachel. And it's also worth noting that the tribe of Judah, from which David the king will come, from which the Messiah, the Savior of the world will come, also comes from Leah. And at the end of Jacob's life, he's going to want to be buried with Leah instead of Rachel, actually. And God has ways of bringing blessing into our lives, even through difficulties. And it's such an important thing to remember. One of the great lessons is this chapter is the Lord knows what we're going through, and he's very gracious. He brings change into our lives. But we can't miss the fact that he knows and he sees the difficulties and the pain and the sorrows that, that we face. And he wants to comfort us in the midst of those battles. 
Part of the mission of the Messiah, Isaiah 61, is to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah 66, 13, as one, uh, who, uh, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted. Like your mom, when you were a little kid, you skinned your knee, you stubbed your toe, you know, <clears throat> when you're hurting and confused. Just like your mom would, God is willing to pick you up and to hold you and to comfort you and let you know everything's going to be okay. 2 Corinthians 1.3 tells us that God is the God of all comfort. Such a beautiful verse to me. In Psalm 23, verse 4, you know the verse, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd's rod was that, that instrument they used to protect the sheep from predators. And the staff was what they used to bring the sheep close to the shepherd when they you know, got in a dangerous spot. And Jesus said, of course, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus' rod is the cross that crushes the head of the enemy. And his staff is the Holy Spirit, which leads us to Jesus and comforts us. No matter who you are, no matter you know, where you are with the Lord uh, tonight, no matter what difficulties you're facing today, there's grace for you. And, you know, if you will just turn to the Lord, grace will flow from him and just overwhelm you. Grace and comfort, they're just a prayer way for each one of us, whether we're believers or whether we're unbelievers. And if you're watching tonight and you're not a believer, you know the blessing and comfort of salvation is just a prayer way tonight. If you come to Jesus and give him your life, turn from your sins, turn to him, give him your heart, he'll meet you and he'll accept you and he'll give you beauty for ashes. The Bible says he'll take the mess of your life and turn it around. He'll give you mourning, uh, give you uh, rejoicing for your mourning. If you'll just let him, if you'll come to him, if you'll pray from your heart and ask him to forgive you of your sins, you know, if you'll give him your life and ask him to forgive you of your sins, he'll receive you and he'll change you. He will if you will. Let's pray. Father God, I just first want to pray for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight watching at home online. Lord, anybody in our fellowship and outside of our fellowship that claims you as their Savior, that's going through a hard time right now. Lord, I pray for your grace to just meet them right now. and Just, God, that you would step into the situation and just bring blessing out of the difficulty that they're facing, Lord. Bring comfort. God, just fill them with your spirit. Just comfort them. Lord, for those that maybe don't know you tonight, or that they look at their life and they see their tendencies are, are not good, good things. Their, their characteristics are that that hurt other people. Lord, all they're in, they've been interested in is just living for themselves. Lord, and they know it's wrong. They know it's not good in your sight. Lord, I pray that you give them courage to pray and ask you to come into their life to forgive them of their sins. Lord, I pray that you would just hear that prayer as you promised and that you would meet them, 
and that you cleanse them of their sins and make them a, a new creation, just as you promised, Lord. And then give them your Holy Spirit to give them the power to walk with you. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction of your word. Lord, we pray that, God, you would just, again, make this chapter just a good friend of us, just something instructive to us, Lord, that we will live our lives by, Lord, just sowing blessing and sowing grace and sowing patience and the like on other people. Lord, we give you praise and glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen.